It is officially official. What we've known for a long time now is officially true. The mathematics finally agree with the logic. The Los Angeles Lakers will not be a playoff team in 2018-2019. It's a sports fan on ESPN-UP Tuesday afternoon. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with us. That's how we're going to start today. The Los Angeles Lakers... Not going to be a playoff team this year. Officially eliminated from postseason contention as of yesterday. Solidifies what we already knew was going to happen. But that's not where our top story lies. Our top story is who could be the Lakers coach next season. Somebody that our listeners, basketball fans up here, are pretty familiar with. Could Jason Kidd really be the next head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers? First of all, let's take a look at the current version of the Lakers. 32-41, and 41, it is officially a nine-team race in the Western Conference. Nine teams are vying for eight spots. Realistically, eight teams are vying for eight spots. We know the realistic field. The Kings are hanging on. They're 14 games out of first place, and they're six and a half out of a playoff spot. But the Lakers now join the ranks of the Timberwolves, the Pelicans, the Grizzlies, the Mavericks, and the Suns all mathematically eliminated in the Western Conference. And you know what? It's not necessarily that the Lakers are missing the playoffs that's newsworthy. They've done that for each of the last six years. What's newsworthy is that LeBron James will be missing the postseason. The last time LeBron James missed the playoffs was the 2004-2005 season. 4.4. That's the number you need to know for today's stat of the day, 4.4. That is the percent of current NBA players who were in the NBA the last time LeBron missed the playoffs, 4.4%. That means 95.6% of the current NBA wasn't in the league when LeBron last missed the postseason. Ray Allen was the leading scorer for the Seattle Supersonics when this happened. Supersonics were still a team. They hadn't moved to Oklahoma City yet. Current Lakers head coach Luke Walton just finished up his second season as a player with the Lakers. And James Harden didn't have a beard. Now, James Harden was 15 years old. Last time LeBron failed to make the playoffs. Again, I'm not pinning that on LeBron. He's having a down year by his standards, and he's still averaging 27-8-8. He's still putting up outstanding numbers, and it's still a down year by his standards. Because he holds himself to a high standard. Everybody holds him to a high standard. So the Lakers are going to miss the playoffs. And it is probably going to cost Luke Walton his job as the head coach of the Lakers. He's been here three years now. And granted, he didn't win his first two years with the Lakers. Didn't make the playoffs in those seasons either. But now that he's got arguably the greatest player in the game, now you're supposed to make the playoffs. Even though Magic Johnson said this is a two-year deal at minimum. They've got LeBron for four, but at minimum, this was going to be a two-year plan. He couldn't get to the postseason this year, and that's what ultimately will cost him his job. There's only nine games left in the season. This isn't going to happen before season's end. This is going to come in the offseason, especially since that organization does want Luke Walton to be their head coach. I'm talking about the ownership. I'm talking about the buses. Jeannie Buss said that she wants Luke Walton to be her team's head coach. Magic Johnson does not. Magic Johnson is looking for a scapegoat. Whether that's Luke Walton or not, I don't know if it's right, but that's who it's going to be. 
Luke Walton was a guy a couple of years ago as an assistant coach, as an interim head coach, won NBA Coach of the Month. Granted, he was coaching the Warriors. I don't think he's a terrible coach. I really don't. Are there better coaches in this league? Absolutely there are. Much better coaches in this league, and he's not a great coach by any standards. But can he coach in the NBA? I I think he could. I think he could. I do think he could, but not with this team, in this locker room, in this work environment. It's just a recipe for disaster for anybody, which makes me think, why would anyone want the Lakers job? Why would anyone be the head coach of Los Angeles Lakers right now? What is appealing about that job? What you would be stepping into? Because you think Magic is ever going to be the scapegoat for all his faults as a general manager? It's never going to happen. Never going to happen. Your head is automatically on the chopping block if you don't win. And it's not like Luke Walton where they thought, you know, this is going to be a two to four year plan we can ease into. This is going to be, you win now or you're out. Because time is ticking on LeBron and time is ticking on his contract. You need to win now or you're out. For some reason, Jason Kidd thinks this is an attractive job. Rumors are linking Jason Kidd to being the coach that the Lakers target this offseason if and when Luke Walton is fired as head coach. So what kind of hire would this be for the Lakers? Jason Kidd has coached five NBA seasons, one with Brooklyn, four with Milwaukee. He's had a winning record in two and a half of those five seasons, and I say two and a half because he was 23-22 and 22 during his final season with the Bucks when he was fired midway through the year. He went 44-38 and 38 during his first season as an NBA head coach. That was his only season with Brooklyn. That was his best season so far. Since then, he went 41-41 and 41 with Milwaukee, took a step back and went 33-49 and 49 in 2015-2016. They went 42-40 and 40 in 2016-17, and then his most recent season was fired midway through the year after going 23-22. and 22. This is a guy whose most memorable moment as a head coach was intentionally having a player bump into him so he could spill water and get an extra timeout, which he was later suspended for. So what is it about his coaching record that makes him attractive to the Lakers? What makes Magic Johnson think, this is my guy, this is the guy I want to coach my failing basketball team? I tell you what, I think I know what it is. It has nothing to do with Kidd's record or his resume. I tell you what, if you look at what's going on with the Lakers and what the Packers went through in their head coaching search when they settled on Matt LaFleur, it's eerily similar. Eerily similar. The Packers said from the beginning that Aaron Rodgers was not going to have a say in the search, but that doesn't mean that who they hire and who they did hire would not be tailored specifically to Aaron Rodgers. LeBron James is the Aaron Rodgers in this situation. He may not have any input on who the next Laker head coach will be. But that doesn't mean Magic isn't going to get a guy specifically tailored to LeBron James. LeBron will go down as one of the greatest of all time, maybe the greatest. And you look at some of his rivals for the title of GOAT, greatest of all time. They have all had fantastic head coaches. Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant each had Phil Jackson. Bill Russell had Red Auerbach. Tim Duncan, Greg Popovich, LeBron James has never had anywhere close to the coaching that some of the others in the greatest of all time conversation have had. Throughout his career, LeBron James has had Eric Spolstra, Ty Lue, David Blatt, Luke Walton, 
None of those coaches have ever won LeBron a championship. LeBron has won a championship for those coaches. And I'm not saying that they were bad coaches, but are they among the greatest of all time? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And did they exert authority over LeBron? No. They all knew what the position was. They knew it was LeBron's team. It was no longer their team. Luke Walton knows that now. David Blatt, Ty Lue knew that in Cleveland. Eric Spolstra knew that in Miami, but he still had Pat Riley to get his back. He'd push back on LeBron. Spolstra never had to. Still, what if LeBron ever had one of the smartest basketball coaches ever? One of the greatest minds in terms of basketball smartness. I tell you what, I don't think that would matter. I don't think it would matter a bit if you put LeBron with the smartest basketball coach in history. And I think that's what the Lakers are getting at by potentially looking into bringing in Jason Kidd. I don't believe LeBron would benefit from the smartest basketball coach in history. Because with LeBron, it is all about keeping him in check. LeBron is going to run that team unless you assert your authority. You have the physical presence to say, no, this is my team. Think about Brad Stevens and LeBron. Brad Stevens is one of the smartest basketball coaches in the game right now, but do you think that he has the kind of authoritative presence that would get LeBron to play in his style? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. LeBron has a great IQ, but he has an unchecked ego, and that's what's gotten him into trouble consistently, like bringing a glass of wine to the pregame, thinking he's untouchable, that he's here to make the coach look good. That's what's gotten LeBron into trouble. That's why... Bringing in a genius head coach wouldn't do a thing for the Lakers. They could bring in Brad Stevens, would not do a thing. You need an authoritative presence more than you need a strong basketball mind right now. And Jason Kidd is one of those guys. I think we can all agree Jason Kidd is not some generational basketball mind. But he is an authoritative guy, and he's well accomplished as a player. He's got that physical presence that LeBron would have no choice but to respect and revere. That's the biggest thing for LeBron right now. He doesn't necessarily need to be coached up the X's and O's way. He needs an authoritative figure as his head coach, and he hasn't had that throughout his career. So the question is, if things don't work out between the Lakers and Jason Kidd, who do you fall back on? Who is that kind of coach that just his presence will be enough for LeBron to stand at attention. Greg Popovich is about the only one I can think of off the top of my head. And there's no way he's leaving San Antonio, especially not for the Lakers. Mike Krzyzewski, Roy Williams, some of the best at the college level. I would think LeBron would have a hard time standing up to either one of those two, but neither of them are going anywhere. They're content with where they are. And the more I think about this, the more I think I see what the Lakers are doing. You don't need an X's and O's guy. That's not going to make a difference. LeBron has had X's and O guys. Maybe not great X's and O guys, but they've been guys who rely on basketball knowledge rather than authority. You bring in a guy like Jason Kidd, LeBron's probably smarter than Jason Kidd, X's and O wise. But you need a guy on the sideline that LeBron can be his player coach self out there on the floor and then still respect you, still revere you. Jason Kidd could do that. Jason Kidd could be that guy for the Lakers. And that's why I think this hire makes a lot of sense. If that's indeed the case, if Luke Walton is fired in the offseason, which he's going to be, 
and Jason Kidd is the guy that the Lakers bring in. We owe you our first time out when we come back. Opening day is technically right around the corner. I know we have those games in Japan. The real opening day for the rest of us. We'll take a look at the latest power rankings and see where your team stands heading into opening day next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. With opening day just a couple of days away, for all of us who are not fans of the Mariners or the Athletics, they opened the season in Japan last week, we are getting set for one of our favorite days of the year, which should be a national holiday. And in these last few days of breathless anticipation, MLB.com has decided to supply us with their first batch of power rankings. And I already have a disagreement with them. I'm just looking at the list right now, and I'm already in disagreement over their number one and their number two. Because I believe they should be flipped. Right now, MLB.com is listing the Houston Astros with the number one power rank. Which, I mean, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. They're actually my pick to win the World Series last year. You know, they re-signed Correa, they have Altuve, they re-signed Bregman, they added Michael Brantley is a big one. But the Boston Red Sox sitting at the number two spot, to me, when you're the defending champs, it's your league until someone says otherwise. You're putting the league on notice. To me, Boston's still got a good enough team that it's their league until someone takes it from them. I would still put the Red Sox at number one overall, and I, I don't say that because... You know, you don't automatically get the top spot just by winning your league. But the Red Sox had a strong offseason. They're giving us every reason to think they're going to be right back there. They're going to be contending again. They locked down Chris Sale. Really, the only thing that's hampered them in this postseason is they lost Craig Kimbrell, a guy that really faltered in the month of October. He wasn't very effective during the postseason run. Nonetheless, I still would put Boston at number one. MLB.com has them at number two behind Houston. Number three, the New York Yankees. I tell you what, how well you start the year can impact the way the rest of your season goes. I know it's about how you finish, but when you're playing in the AL East, you got to be good every single month. When you're trying to keep pace with the Red Sox, you've got teams that you never know what you're going to get out of the Rays, the Blue Jays. I don't think we're all expecting a lot out of Baltimore. You've got to be good from the get-go. And it could be a rough April for the Yankees because Dellen Batances, Aaron Hicks, CeCe Sabathia, and Luis Severino will all be on the injured list when opening day comes around. They're all going to miss significant time. However, good news for the Yanks is if they need any more good news over there, 16 of their first 21 games this year are against three mediocre AL Central teams, the White Sox, the Tigers, and the Royals, And they have a series against Baltimore. So it's a pretty favorable schedule in the early going if they're going to be shorthanded. Number four on the list, the Los Angeles Dodgers. They are the highest ranked NL team in the first power rankings. The Dodgers are that team that's perennially there. They keep making the World Series. I'm saying just go ahead and win it if you're going to get there. If they can't win it with the rosters they've had over the last couple of years, they're not going to. They're going to keep being good. The Dodgers know that. But signing Doc Roberts to a four-year extension, knowing you're not going to win a World Series if you can't with the group that you've already had, you're just not going to do it. They are going to be hurting in the starting rotation in the early going. We all know Clayton Kershaw is not going to start the season on time. He's missed the entire spring. Rich Hill isn't going to be on the active roster to start the year either. 
Walker Bueller had some arm tenderness earlier this year, and he's a young guy that really came along last year, really burst on the scene. He's going to be their best option in the early going until they get Kershaw Hill back, but he's going to have to take his game to a new level here in the early going if the Dodgers want to keep pace in early April. Number five on the list, how about this? The Washington Nationals. Their best player, maybe in franchise history, leaves for a division rival. And yet they're still number five on MLB.com's initial power rankings. That's interesting considering the reasoning behind it. Patrick Corbin was added to the starting rotation. It's a good ad. He's one of the top pitchers on that team now. But is that enough to make him a top five team over the Cubs, the Brewers, teams like that? They also cite the young guns on that team. Guys like Juan Soto at 20 years old and Victor Robles, 21 years old. I mean, yeah, they're good. But a top five team, I don't know about that one. I don't know about the Nats. Number six is the Cubs going through the rest of the top ten. You've got the Cubs, the Indians, Cardinals, Brewers, and Phillies rounding out the top ten. I tell you what, there's a lot I disagree with on this list put together by MLB.com. The Cardinals is a top ten team ahead of the Brewers, and the Phillies just cracked the list at number ten. The Indians were pretty well decimated from the core group that they had this offseason, yet there they are at number seven. I know they play in the AL Central, but... Does that make them good? We all saw them get exposed in the postseason last year, swept by Houston after running through a weak AL Central in which they were the only team to finish above 500. I don't know about this list from MLB.com. The rest of the top 15, the Rays check in at number 11, followed by Colorado, the Mets, Atlanta, and Minnesota. I tell you what, there are a few teams in that top 15 that I wanted to touch on, like the Cleveland Indians. They've been making some news lately. Jose Ramirez was carted off in a spring training game the other day. Fouled a ball off his leg. There's no timetable for his return. That's a top 15 player that's burst on the scene the last four years. They're going to be without Jose Ramirez. They lost Michael Brantley in the offseason. Jan Gomes is gone, although he may have been past his prime. It's going to be a different look Indian team this year. But they're still the favorites in the AL Central until further notice. However, how long is that going to last? The Indians are about to face what is going to be a growing headache for MLB GMs and owners in the coming years. As contracts continue to expand and get larger, Manny Machado started it, Bryce Harper kept it going, and Mike Trout set a new bar. Now these top-end players are going to be asking for ridiculous contracts. And we know somebody out there is going to pay them just may not be the team they're currently on. Think about the Indians, a team that has two top 15 players on their roster right now, between Ramirez and Francisco Lindor. Indians owner Paul Dolan was quoted as uh, saying something that raised a few eyebrows in Cleveland. He was talking about the contract situation. He said that if anyone is going to get that kind of money, it's only when players start getting billion-dollar contracts. That's the only way that Cleveland will ever start being one of those teams that gives out a high contract. Someone asked, what would you say to fans who are nervous about Francisco Lindor leaving? Paul Dolan said, enjoy him. Enjoy him. So if Francisco Lindor asks for one of these top-tier contracts, which he's deserving of, by the way, I'd take Lindor over Manny Machado, wouldn't you? And if Machado's worth $300 million, 
What does Francisco Lindor ask for when he becomes a free agent? Lindor and the Indians reached a one-year, $10.5 million deal back in January to avoid arbitration. What happens when he wants to get paid this offseason? Because he's gonna, and it doesn't sound like Paul Dolan is willing to do it. So how likely is it that Francisco Lindor will be the grand prize on the free agent market this offseason? Sounds extremely likely. Extremely likely. So if you've got the money and you're in the market for a shortstop, sounded like Lindor is going to be available. More bad news for the Indians. They are going to start the year without Jason Kipnis. Power-hitting utility player, should we call him that now? He was a second baseman, played a little center field last year. Let's call him a utility player. He is going to start the season on the injured list. So Cleveland signs Brad Miller away from Milwaukee. Miller's a guy that's probably past his prime, but he'll do the job early on. Milwaukee parting ways with NLDS hero Eric Kratz. I know that one was tough to take for Brewer fans. I love Eric Kratz. I'm not even a Brewer fan. But he's heading out to San Francisco. As much as I like Eric Kratz, I know the fans up here do too. It's probably a good move for him to really get something going in his career. Play behind Buster Posey and we'll see. We'll see what happens. Maybe he's on the move again here in a few years. This is a big one for the Cincinnati Reds. Scooter Jeanette will be out two to three months. Jeanette was a big part of why the Reds were able to catch fire about the midway point of last season. And then they lost fire, lost some steam. I'm a little surprised they weren't ranked higher on MOB.com's power rankings. They loaded up in this offseason. They pick up Yaziel Puig. They deal Homer Bailey. He finds his way to Kansas City. That's my biggest complaint about that is that we don't get the most country sounding battery ever anymore. Homer Bailey plus Tucker Barnhart. That's what I miss about that. They did lose Billy Hamilton Graden, but Billy Hamilton's bat just has not been productive enough. Great defensively, great speed, but you got to be able to hit too. Some other points of interest before opening day, Justin Verlander re-signs to a three-year deal with Houston and Ian Happ will start the season at the AAA level for the Chicago Cubs. He'll be playing in Des Moines, Iowa. He's a guy who had a pretty big role for the Cubs last season as they went on the run, ultimately fell to second place in the NL Central via the tiebreaker game. How about what's going on in New York? The New York Mets are refusing to pay Jacob deGrom. Why on earth are they doing that? I'm not always an advocate for professional athletes getting paid gross sums of money, If it's to keep him with one of my favorite teams, that's a different thing. But a guy that I have no affiliation with, usually I'm not that kind of guy. But to be honest with you, I'm upset the Mets are doing this to Jacob deGrom. What would they be without him? They need him a lot more than he needs the Mets. Because I guarantee there's somebody out there who'd be willing to pay to have him pitch for them. And I give deGrom a lot of credit. He's handling this well. I would have told the Mets to go kick rocks. But it was nice to see Noah Syndergaard, his teammate, his fellow pitcher, stand up for him, to his team, to the New York Mets, and say, pay this man. He deserves it. Pay the man. You know, you hear athletes in the same league stand up for each other. LeBron James will say something in support of Kyrie Irving. He'll say it back. You have these athletes who are on different teams that are friends. But it's a different thing when you have teammates standing up and advocating for each other to get the contract they feel they deserve. Because if Syndergaard wants DeGrom to get paid, and he does, that likely takes money away from Syndergaard and the rest of the Mets. 
But Syndergaard is standing up for DeGrom because he believes this is what Jacob DeGrom deserves. I believe it too. I think Jacob DeGrom should get paid. Should get paid a lot more than he's getting right now. So if he wants a new contract, I don't know why the Mets are making him wait like this. Because the Mets are not an attractive team right now. And they're not in an attractive division right now. You lose Jacob DeGrom, you're in a lot of trouble. Not only in terms of wins and losses, success, what have you, but with your fan base. If you let a guy like that get away from you because you refuse to pay him the money he in all likelihood deserves. Also, if your team's in the market for a starting pitcher, of pretty good caliber, might send him Garrett Colesway. He says that the Astros have not contacted him about extending his contract. So Garrett Cole could be hitting the open market. If you've got a contending team, you're interested in a really good pitcher, and he might be the guy to talk to. A lot of these guys are probably not getting paid the money they deserve, but somebody's going to give it to them. Somebody's going to give it to you. Just wait for the next MLB free agency cycle. It's going to be so much fun, especially for us getting to track it all. We are just about to the bottom of the hour. We owe you our next time out. When we come back, the NFL looking at a potential rule change, and it's got fans split, but not owners. Next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you Tuesday afternoon. Here's your Sports Center update. Two Georgia football players were arrested over the weekend. Senior wide receiver Tyler Simmons and freshman defensive back Tyreek Stevenson are facing misdemeanor charges following a bar fight. The NFL has officially announced that the Bears and Packers will be the Thursday night kickoff game to open up the NFL's 100th season on September 5th. And finally, this is breaking news. Amidst allegations of collusion and political corruption, President Donald Trump was photographed meeting with high-profile Russians at the White House yesterday. Evgeny Kuznetsov, Dmitry Orlov, and several of their Washington Capitol teammates were at the White House being honored for their 2018 Stanley Cup victory. So take that, Mueller. Put that in your report. By the way, the president did figure out how to say Evgeny. Last year when Evgeny Malkin was there, he introduced him as Evgeny. He had a little bit of Forrest Gump going on, the Jenny. Evgeny Malkin. This year he got it right, Evgeny Kuznetsov. We gave him a second chance, he got it right. All right, once again, you're listening to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. I mentioned before the break, the NFL is considering a drastic rule change, something that they don't do a whole heck of a lot of. Eight high-profile NFL execs formed the competition committee, and they met last week, and they had a really interesting vote on the future of the onside kick and kickoffs in general. They voted 7-1 to in favor of a proposal that was originally brought up by Greg Schiano back in 2016. It was most recently re-brought up by the Denver Broncos and now will be voted on at the annual owners meeting in Arizona next week. The proposal provides an alternative to the traditional onside kick. It's called the 4th and 15 proposal because what teams would have the opportunity to do is one time and one time only during the game and only in the 4th quarter, teams would get to run an offensive snap that would have to go for at least 15 yards in lieu of an onside kick and they would be able to retain possession of the ball. That's why it's being called the 4th and 15 proposal. Teams can do this once 
and they had the option to do it instead of the onside kick. They must inform the officials beforehand that they're going to do so. And this is the part that I really like about it. I'm not saying I like the whole rule in general, but I like this part about it. If, for whatever reason, teams do go for the 4th and 15 option, and they commit a penalty, like a 10-yard holding, then they have to go for it in the 4th and 25 scenario. They can't just say, okay, yeah, if we're at 4th and 25, we're just going to kick it away now. Uh Uh-uh, can't do that. Once you make the decision, you inform the referee, you are locked into your decision. The lone dissenter on the competition committee was Giants owner John Mara. He said, what are we, the Arena Football League? And you know, I get that. It seems like a gimmick. I was really skeptical when I saw this rule change myself. Don't get me wrong. I was skeptical about this because I like the onside kick. Nicknamed the most exciting play in football, maybe in all of sports. But has it been that exciting lately? If you look at the numbers, they weren't good for the onside kicks. You had a better chance of getting seriously injured than you did of successfully recovering an onside kick. This past season, onside kick recoveries were at an all-time low for the kicking team. Four out of 53 were successful. Now here's where I need my smart listeners to put on their math hat because I have no idea what that percentage is, but I know it's not high. I do know some other numbers to throw at you. The NFL started digging into this a little bit more, which makes me think maybe it's got a shot at actually going through at the owners' meeting. We'll get to that. But they came up with some pretty good statistics. Since 2001, NFL teams are converting 4th and 15 opportunities for a first down 28% of the time. So a little over 1 in every 4. But teams are recovering onside kicks during that same span only 8% of the time. So that means teams are two and a half times more likely to retain possession after a score. But again, you can only use it once during a game. So this is where the strategy comes into play. I didn't like this rule originally when I thought it was going to replace the traditional onside kick. But if it's an option to the onside kick, I might be on board with that. I'm not saying I'm fully on board with this. I think it's something I would like to see happen at the AAF level first. I want to see this tried on an experimental basis, kind of like what Major League Baseball is doing in the Atlantic League of Professional Baseball with electronic strike zones. They're testing it out at a lower level. The AAF would be a good spot for it, or even the XFL, because you know they need a gimmick to try and stay afloat. So those on the competition committee did vote on this, and they voted 7-1. Again, it's a meaningless vote. It's basically a straw poll in a presidential election. Just kind of gives you a feel of where people are with this idea. Surprisingly, seven of the eight on the competition committee like this idea. So now it goes to the NFL owners in their annual meeting in Arizona next week. All 32 are going to vote on it. They need 24 to pass this new rule that would give teams the option once per ball game to have a fourth and 15 from their own 35-yard line in lieu of a traditional onside kick. And again, onside kicks were not successful very much last year unless Odell Beckham decides to olay the ball and let the Bears recover it. They weren't very successful. The other aspect to look at is player safety. The NFL has been trying to eliminate contact on kickoffs, whether it be with downfield momentum, making it easier to obtain touchbacks, what have you. The NFL wants to erase contact and kickoffs. They want as many touchbacks as they can. And they've been doing that through the rules that they implement regarding downfield contact. In 2010, 16% of NFL kickoffs 
resulted in touchbacks. Since they've been implementing these new rules, that number has rapidly grown. This past season, 62% of NFL kickoffs resulted in touchbacks. 16 to 62%. The NFL wants to erase the injury risk from kickoffs. And if they have the opportunity to eliminate risk of injury on outside kicks as well, you know they're going to do it. And statistics will show you that this is probably going to do that. The traditionalist, the football purist, don't want this to happen. Well, you have a younger generation that really wants this to happen. Because it's exciting. It's high-octane offense. Wouldn't you rather see Patrick Mahomes or Tom Brady get a one-shot at giving their team a chance for a potential game-winning drive? They would actually have a chance for that drive as compared to trying to onside kick it. Weirdly enough, the AAF disproved that theory. Their first ever onside kick in league history was successful. It was a pretty wild play, pretty entertaining. And that's why I'm glad that they're giving teams the option. They're not eliminating the onside kick completely. Because it still is a pretty exciting play, especially when you get it to work. So again, I have reservations about this. Is it a gimmick? Absolutely it's a gimmick. The NFL will market it as player safety, but we know this is a gimmick. People like high-octane offense. They want to be entertained. People weren't happy with a Super Bowl where teams combined to score 16 points. Someone wins 13-3. They're not happy with that. People want 54-51. to People want to see fourth-quarter comebacks and game-winning drives, stuff where legends are made. That's what people want to see, especially in the younger generation, and that's why there's a good chance this is going to pass next week. Aside from that, can we all marvel at how Greg Schiano brought this up in 2016 and it gained no traction? Now the Broncos bring it up again in 2019 and it's actually gaining momentum. It's amazing how successful something will be when it distances itself from Greg Schiano. This is a real thing that I'm not sure football fans are aware of. This could be a real possibility in the coming season. The 100th anniversary of the NFL. This could really happen by this fall. It's extremely rare that the NFL passes rule changes that actually affect strategy. They'll affect gameplay, like where you can hit the quarterback or how you have to play kickoffs. But the strategy of the game? That's really, really something rare when the NFL passes a rule that affects that. The NFL moving back the required distance for an extra point. That's probably about as groundbreaking as you will get in this aspect. Unless this passes. Very rarely will strategy be affected. Will owners vote to affect strategy in the NFL? They will vote for gameplay changes in regards to player safety and what have you. There is a difference between those two. But strategy is a whole different thing, and that's something the NFL really hasn't wanted to change on over the last how many decades. Think back to 2015 when the Colts proposed making a touchdown worth nine points instead of six. The NFL shot that down pretty quickly. They didn't want a nine-point touchdown. They liked the game that they had. They didn't want to change the strategy of it. This would be probably the biggest change of strategy since what? I don't think any of us can remember the NFL strategy changing so much in our lifetime. Again, I'm not opposed to this. I'm not totally in favor of it. I want to see it tested out at the AF level first. Something like that. I don't want to see it directly adopted into the NFL's policy. But again... It's not about what I want. I don't get to make the rules. I just get to talk about them. And by next week, we could have a major policy shift in the NFL. 
and how football is played around the country as a whole. Can you imagine this at your local high school games? Your little league team? Your Pop Warner kids going out and trying this instead of punting the ball away or trying an onside kick? I don't know if they have onsides in Pop Warner. But we're looking at a potential major policy shift that we've never seen in our lifetime in the most powerful sports organization in the world. We'll take our last time out. When we come back, I've got a few more thoughts on Gronk. Some people have come up with the craziest reason for thinking it's time for him to retire. Plus, the Duke-UCF game on Sunday gave us lots to talk about, but some people think that means it's another reason to talk about why college athletes should be paid. Next, the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Danner Hoops with you, just about set to hit the 5 o'clock hour here in a couple of minutes. And the work day, what have you. Glad that you're with us in your Tuesday afternoon. Well, I tell you what, it's been about 48 hours since Rob Gronkowski announced his retirement from professional football. Three-time Super Bowl champion, played nine NFL seasons, but his rapidly deteriorating health has forced him into an early retirement at the age of 29. He was at the point where he was effective if he was on the field, but the boys in the lab literally had to stitch him together every single week. His body was being held together by threads. So Gronk decides to call it a career. He's accomplished so much in his life. Decides, you know what? I'm going to enjoy the life that I have. I'm not going to go through any further risk of injury. You know, that's the right thing to do. You got three Super Bowl rings. You're not even 30 years old. Your body's been taking a toll on that some guys go a career without having to go through. Yeah, why not? That's a sound decision, isn't it? A guy can make those decisions. Well, apparently some Patriot fans don't believe this decision is actually Gronk's. They believe that an outside force is telling Gronk it's time to retire. And that would be his girlfriend, Sports Illustrated swimsuit model Camille Kostick. They believe she's the driving force telling Gronk to retire. A couple of days ago, Camille put a picture on Instagram of her and Gronk after the Super Bowl. The caption said, You motivate me to be better. You show me that limits can be pushed and the challenges make you stronger. If you ask me, you are the best to ever do it. There is nothing like the thrill of watching you play. I love you with all my heart. You allow me to take the term proud girlfriend to a new level. For all the people that have come up to us to tell you that they are your biggest fans, I quietly smile because I know I'm yours, and I will continue to root for you in all that you do. We love you, Pats Nation and Patriots. Hashtag retirement, hashtag 87, hashtag Hall of Famer. Isn't that adorable? I mean, who wouldn't want somebody who is that down for them, that supports them like that? Well, Patriot fans apparently don't want Gronk to have her. Because the comments that she got on that photo were out of bounds, frankly. They're pretty sickening. Things like, so Camille made him retire. You're an awful person for this. Why do you make Rob retire? You made him retire, you dummy. This is all your fault. Some of these comments are out of bounds. I mean, is Grok not capable of making his own decisions? Would anybody who was in his place and gone through the physical toil that he has, would they not say it's time to hang up the cleats? You've already accomplished so much. You're arguably the greatest tight end in all of football. 
Now go retire, enjoy your 30th birthday with your three rings and your supermodel girlfriend, and they think that Gronk's not making this decision himself? That he needs someone else to make the decision for him? That he's being forced into doing it? Let's face it, I don't think anyone could talk Gronk into retirement. Nobody could do that. This is Gronk's choice. This negative stereotype around Gronk is that he's the big dumb monster. He's the ultimate brainless brawny oaf. The ultimate jock. I mean, is he a guy who certainly parties a little more than he probably should? Yeah. I mean, he plays the jester well, but he's not as stupid as people make him out to be. He's, he's really not. Am I going to miss seeing Gronk? Yeah, and I'm not even a Patriots fan. You think I want Tom Brady to have any extra weapons to help him win another Super Bowl? No. I just like seeing Rob Gronkowski play. And we got to see maybe the greatest of all time at his position. That's a whole debate in itself. Who's the greatest of all time at the tight end position? Him? Tony Gonzalez, maybe? The debate yesterday in the Will Cain show after we signed off was Rob Gronkowski has the numbers. But he only played nine seasons and he never played a full season because he couldn't stay on the field. Tony Gonzalez put up similar numbers with longevity. That's the big debate between Gronk and Tony Gonzalez for greatest of all time at that position. Gronkowski is the guy you would take in a single game. Gonzalez is the guy you would take for the entire season. That was the debate on the Will Kane show yesterday. I agree with that. I like that thinking. But come on, guys. Leave Mrs. Gronk out of it. It's not her decision, you know that. If you know Gronk at all, you know he hasn't been talked into doing this by anybody. Alright, moving on, before we run out of time, the UCF and Duke basketball game on Sunday was one of the best basketball games we've seen in a long time. UCF should have had it won. Zion probably should have been called for an offensive foul late in the game, maybe a couple of times. But UCF made a statement. And it wasn't as much who we thought would pen that statement. We all thought Taco Fall was going to be the X-Factor. X-Factor for UCF in that game was Aubrey Dawkins. And while he was impressive in that game, it loses a little luster when you find out he was like 23. He's like Brandon Whedon playing in college. You know, he's like a grown man playing against children. There was a time when Brandon Whedon was considered a good quarterback, believe it or not. He was actually a Heisman uh, not a favorite, not even really a candidate. He was an outsider. Let's say, let's go with that. A Heisman outsider at Oklahoma State at one point. So Aubrey Dawkins was the X factor for UCF on Sunday when they narrowly lost to Duke. Let's be honest. As much as you probably don't like Duke, it would have busted your bracket had they lost. I had Duke going to the national finals and losing to North Carolina. And who wants to see Zion's college career end? Who wants to see that? I don't want this kid to get sent home. This kid is truly box office. I don't know that we've had anybody who's been this box office. I can't think of anybody in recent memory who was at the college level. This box office. You don't want to see this kid's career come to an end. You want to get as much out of him as you can. And for me, that's going to the NCAA title game and losing to their arch rival from down Tobacco Road. But somehow about 48 hours after we witness the best game of the NCAA tournament thus far, the narrative isn't about Duke's narrow win, surviving and advancing to the Sweet 16. It's not about the emotion shown by UCF after the game. 
It's not about Coach K consoling the UCF players after the game. It's not even about Zion's weird way that he runs after a jump shot. Have you ever seen that? Okay, I don't want to say too much about Zion because he's like 6'8", 285, and he could beat me up in five seconds if he wanted to. But have you ever noticed how he never picks up his arms after he runs? Especially after he makes a shot. It's always like his arms are pinned to his side and he just runs back. It's the weirdest thing for a guy that athletic to look so unathletic. But that still wasn't the narrative. Somehow out of all that, the narrative came to be that these guys are putting on fantastic shows like this to line the NCAA's pocket, to line the university's pockets, but not their own. Not their own. And that's the big injustice. Every time that we're going to get a great NCAA tournament game, this is my biggest gripe with March Madness, every time we get a great game like this, someone is going to start up the narrative that the players aren't going to receive any benefit from it other than the experience. You know someone's going to do it. The Iowa-Tennessee game where Iowa rallied from 25 down to force overtime on Sunday. Man, did you see that Hawkeye game? What an effort. What a gritty performance from those guys. Yeah, but it's all going to lie in the school's pockets. Players are never going to see any of that. Let me put on my realist hat and right or wrong, NCAA players will never be paid. They will never be paid for what they do. The closest we came was that 2014 lawsuit that Northwestern players filed. That's the closest we came. And if that didn't get passed, it's not going to happen. NCAA players are not going to get paid. When you go through the logistics and the legal parameters surrounding it, it's never going to happen. Because if you pay Zion, you're also going to have to pay the 11th, 12th, 13th guys on the bench. Then the issue becomes you're paying this guy who plays 16 minutes a season, only appears in four games, and you got to pay Zion. How do you negotiate who gets what? Do you do it by a performance-based standpoint? Well, then you're going to have to get agents involved, unless you want the students to advocate themselves, which to be honest, is what they're doing right now against the NCAA. And I'm not saying NCAA players don't get anything out of what they're doing right now or what they go through. Let me put on my stir-the-pot hat now. Yes, that they can benefit from these games. They can use this opportunity to get noticed by NBA scouts or professional scouts overseas, continue their career. But honestly, how many of them are going to do that? How many of them are really going to translate to the next level? 60 guys get drafted every summer. That's it. Two rounds of 30. Then what? Some of these guys go over to Europe for three, four, five, six, seven years maybe? But then what do they do when their playing career is over? They come back to America or they drop out of the NBA and they take up a job based on whatever their degree got them. Maybe they're a lawyer if they finish school. Maybe they're working for Enterprise Rent-A-Car if they didn't. That sounds harsh to say, but how many times have you seen an athlete not finish college be a one-and-done, and and think that they're going to be the next big thing, and then they don't make it in the pros. Then what do you do? Because let's be honest, you can be a legend in college and not translate to the NBA. Look at Fletcher McGee from Wofford. Last week, he set the NCAA record for career three-pointers with his 509th. A couple days later, plays Kentucky for a chance to go to the Sweet 16. His team got within four in the final minute of the game, and he goes 0 for 12 from behind the arc. The top all-time sharpshooter in NCAA history fails to hit 1-3 against Kentucky in a close game. He hits one, maybe two, and Wofford is in the Sweet 16 right now over Kentucky. 
That's why I'm saying very few NCAA athletes, especially in basketball, ever translate to the pros. So why not let them profit any way they can? And it's not practical to say, let's pay the players. It's never going to happen. Right or wrong, it's never going to happen. It's not practical. So let them profit off their image, their merchandise, their memorabilia. Heck, bring back NCAA football, NCAA basketball. I loved those video games. Bring those back. Those were so much fun. Let the players profit off that. It benefits the players. I'm sure it benefits the school in some ways. It benefits us as fans because we get some great video games that we haven't had in how long now because of things like this. It'd be a win-win-win for everybody. I don't have a problem with a player profiting off their likeness. Let it happen. There's no reason why it shouldn't. It's just not practical, right or wrong, to say, let's pay the players a set salary to play college ball. I am out of time. As always, I appreciate you tuning in. We're going to be back on tomorrow, same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central on ESPN, UP, and online with our app. You can go to the Apple Store or Google Play, get our free mobile app, and you can listen to any show. If you've missed any part of it, you can listen to today's show, any show in the past, in the on-demand section. I'm Tanner Hoops. Appreciate you as always for listening. Have a great rest of your evening. See you tomorrow on ESPN UPWZAM, Ishpeming Marquette.